a huge piece that I always want people to recognize is that the behaviors that you see in your classroom that are not conducive to children sitting down and following expectations blindly are the behaviors that will serve them very well in life. Those are the pieces of their personalities that we should be highlighting, that we should be supporting them and creating and crafting to make it work for them. And I always told my students, even when I taught middle school, you don't like that person? Great, make it work for you. Find out how you can make this relationship work for you. I don't care if you like me as a teacher, find out how to work with me. Those are those are things that we need to we need to stop getting so emotional about the behavior itself and thinking about the skills that are underlying those behaviors. If a student is refusing to work and they're telling you no, that's a huge piece of self-advocacy. Great, I'm so happy that you're able to do that for me. I want you to be able to do that when somebody's trying to put their hands on you when they shouldn't be. I want you to be able to do that when you're, you know, when you're in a job. On today's guest episode, Rachel Nye is sharing all about trauma-supportive teaching. She's going to tell you what it is and how you can effectively use this lens so that you can create a learning space where all of your students feel welcome and supported. All right, let's jump into the intro. Hey, hey, welcome to the Culture Center Classroom Podcast, a space for educators looking to step into their power by creating a classroom environment and lessons that affirm, welcome, and celebrate all their students through instruction. I'm your host, Jocelyn Hubbard, an educator, teacher coach, wife, mother to five children, and your partner on this journey of creating culture-centered classrooms. Let's jump into the episode. Welcome back to the Culture Center Classroom Podcast. I am thrilled today because I have the opportunity to chat with a very special guest that I know that you are going to enjoy listening to what she has to say just as much as I enjoyed chatting with her about all these amazing things. So let me go ahead and introduce my guest officially by reading you a little bit of her bio. Today's guest is Rachel Nye. She is a certified special education and elementary teacher and certified child trauma professional. Oh yeah, you hear that, you know what's coming, some real good stuff. With a master's in curriculum and instruction, she strives to create meaningful educational experiences for students with trauma histories. She loves sharing ideas, collaborating, and empowering educators with the tools they need to make holistic behavior change. When she's not working with students or training educators, she's enjoying her time as a new mom. I cannot wait for you to dive into understanding what it means to have a trauma-supported classroom, a space where we are truly thinking about what each of our students needs and designing this learning space through a trauma-informed lens. It is so important because that is a part of our culture. You all know I break down this word culture all the time because it's not just race or ethnicity or religion, like all the things we typically think about. It's it's so much more. And I'm excited for you to hear from Rachel how you can do this because she's dynamic. Like I've heard her speak before and that's why I was so excited when she said yes, that she would be on today's podcast. Without further ado, I'm going to bring Rachel onto the show. Hello, hello. Hey, so happy to be here. <laughs> good, good, good. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very well. I'm excited for our conversation. I know how passionate you are about supporting teachers in this way, supporting schools and districts in this way. And it is an important piece, especially coming off the heels of a pandemic. And with all of the other things that we have going on in this world, Clearly, we just had some school shootings, and it seems like that's a reoccurring theme, which we, whew, we hope stops. 
But that is the world that our children and our teachers are living in every single day. So it was so important for me to bring you on today's episode to think about creating a space that does support our students, and you know what? Also our teachers. So I just shared a little bit about who you are in your bio, but I really feel like it's important for people to share their own stories, to to share who they are, how they show up, and why. Tell us who you are, Rachel. Hi, everybody. I am really, really happy to be here. Um, Who am I? That is such a loaded question. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, But... My story, I guess we'll start with just how I came to be a teacher and why I am so in love with this work. I was never the kid growing up that was like, oh, I'm totally going to be a teacher. I probably changed what I wanted to be 8,000 times, even when I was an adult. I originally went to school for music, and then I changed to accounting, and I have degrees in everything. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a teacher. I taught musical theater to kids for years, um, and I used to live in Los Angeles, as Jocelyn and I were talking earlier. I found myself constantly gravitating towards the children who maybe we're just like the behavior problems, quote unquote, like those kids that just gave you a run for your money. And I loved it. I loved their spiciness. I loved the sass. I feel like I could give it right back to them. And like, we just kind of understood each other. So I just loved it. Um, And they kept me on my toes. So I feel like that's kind of like what brought me into this work, especially in special education. But again, with that, I never set out to be like a behavior teacher. I never set out to be a trauma-informed behavior teacher. I didn't even know what the heck that was until years later. But I realized when I got my first job and it was in a special education middle school behavior program, I realized very quickly (laughs) that I was not prepared. So I just went on this self-discovery journey of like, who am I in this role? Who am I in the classroom? Who am I with these kids? And what do I want to give them? And what do I want this practice to look like? And so it became a really big journey for me um, over the years to kind of figure it out and fine tune it. And I realized how much I absolutely love it. So that's why I am in the classroom. Outside of the classroom, I'm a new mom, really just trying to figure out how to mom. (laughs) My husband and I live in the country and we really just like enjoy being out in the woods and hanging out with our new little baby boy who is almost five months old and I can't even believe how fast time has gone yeah it does go (laughs) fast like clearly everyone that listens knows I've got five kids I talk about them a lot and my oldest is 11 I, I I remember when he was four or five months old I really do but in wow like thank you for sharing all of that because what you made me think about is the importance of identity work Mm. and everything that I am constantly advocating for as we are talking about culture and cultural competence is teachers doing the identity work for themselves and then helping their students to do the identity work. Like that really is what culturally responsive and culturally relevant teaching is like, that's the foundation is cultural competence. And If as a child, I had been given the opportunity to do some identity work, I'm not saying I wouldn't have still been become a teacher, but I think that I might have had the courage to explore a couple of other things. Like I wouldn't have seen it as weird or odd because everyone is exploring and this is a journey and it's okay to not know what you want to be when you grow up. Like my main question for my children is who do you want to be when you grow up? Yes. Right? Like, 
Who do you want to be? I Do you want to be a person who is kind and considerate, who values self-care, but also knows how to give in spaces that are meaningful? Do you want to be someone that is just nasty and rude, right? Because who you are is really more important, I think, than like what you do, especially knowing when you're a kid. Absolutely. It's so funny because I, again, my son is almost five months old and I like speak affirmations over him. And I'm just like, I constantly say like, you are kind and you are compassionate and you have boundaries. And you like, I say these things to him instead of being like, you're so smart or you're so, you know, I want him to grow up with that foundation of just feeling these things because really, and again, just to bring it full circle, like education is humans interacting with humans and feeling things. And so like, that's why I'm so excited to have this conversation because it is all about identity and it's about everybody honoring each other's identity. And I also just kind of wanted to add before we like jump into the main pieces of the conversation that I feel that what you do in supporting teachers to create these trauma-informed classrooms, trauma-supportive spaces is valuable because our children need it, but our teachers need it. Like we don't necessarily know because I don't remember anyone sitting me down, definitely not an undergrad and even in my master's program. That was not a part of the narrative. And I know that teacher education programs are shifting and they're incorporating some of this stuff now. But as you just said, as a first, second, third year teacher, you are just trying to gather your pieces and all these other things that were super cute to talk about in undergrad, they go by the wayside. And then by the time you get yourself together, Many times you not necessarily have forgotten about those, but you don't remember all of the foundational pieces that you learned in undergrad. Like no one taught you how to resolve conflict in a healthy way. No one taught you how to regulate your emotions. No, that, that wasn't a piece of it. So how can we then create those spaces for our students? So like, that's why having a partner like you to do this work with is super important. Mm, absolutely. I think it's really, it speaks to the fact too, that I think as just adults, we have to learn what regulation is. We have to learn what identifying emotions <laughs> is for ourselves before we can even be not so much like be made to do it with children, but like to include children in it, right? Like we have to do that work for ourselves first, and then we can include and facilitate that for our kids. Let's go ahead and jump into the meat and potatoes, as they say, of this conversation. What is a trauma supportive space classroom? Like, how do I even say it? What, what am I saying? I always use the term trauma supportive classroom because I think you can be informed without actually doing the work. Rachel, <laughs> you just said a whole word. Okay, keep going. You can be a really, really smart individual and not know how to put these things into practice. And so what we're really looking for is trauma supportive work. So we're making it like a verb and we're doing it right. We're supporting. And what it really is, is just understanding where kids are at in the moment and looking at the moment in front of you as well as the big picture. So I always like to talk about trauma supportive work as having a dinner party. And I know it sounds so weird, but I love this analogy because I really think that it brings it full circle. When you're hosting a dinner party, like you have to think about yourself, right? And then you think about your guest list and the people that you're inviting and say that person invites somebody else. You have to think about those people coming into your home and making them feel welcome, 
You have to identify that you might not know their backgrounds, that you may not understand where they're coming from. They may have opinions that are different from you, and you're still making everybody feel welcome. At the same time, you need to serve something. So you need to think about what you're serving up at that dinner party, just like you would in the classroom, right? What are you providing? What are the supports to make people feel comfortable there? Is there music playing? Like, what is the vibe? I always think about this too as like an energetic exchange. Trauma supportive education is really just understanding that we're human and that we need to be teaching humans how to understand their humanity. <laughs> I'm getting ready to throw a shoe through the camera. Like, <laughs> this is so good. Please keep talking. Um, so it's just understanding that piece and understanding that as the host, we do have a responsibility to make people feel welcome and to make them feel safe. I would never want anybody coming into my home and not feeling safe or comfortable. And I also don't want to run out of wine at my dinner party. So I want to make sure that we have everything that we need, that we're prepared to do this work with our kids. And that's, that's the same thing. That's just my, the easiest way for me to put trauma supportive education into a nice little wrapped up bow is having a dinner party and just constantly thinking about it like that. I love it. <laughs> and that in my ears is ringing true as an equity conversation. Like everything is an equity conversation. How are we an equity, a cultural competence, a diversity? Like that's what you just said. It's all that wrapped into one. That was so beautifully said. And when you were talking about like reflecting on who you are for your students, how you want to show up, how do you want to support them? And then putting that on the dinner table analogy, that is so what this is because every person that enters your space does have a little bit different background and they do have a little bit different experience with trauma. Some people have some of those big T traumas Yep. And some of them are like the smaller T traumas, but also thinking about perspective as, as a mom, my children, they come at me with all kinds of things. And in my mind, I'm like, this is literally not a big deal. I mean, I don't say it out loud to them, but in my mind, I'm like, you are crying. You are, you are all on the ground because this happened and, da -da -da. and I'm thinking to myself, okay, y'all. There are like 75 other things that need to happen right now. And you getting the right shoe today is not where the energy should be spent. But for them, for their perspective of the world, this is a major thing. This is important. So I love how you are taking the time to reflect as an educator first. Think about your lenses. Think about what it is that you are offering and say, I might need to tweak something. Actually, I will. I will have to tweak some things because the way that I'm supported is not necessarily the way these other people are supported. And I also love how you said it's like humanity to humanity, how this thing is now a verb. And so I'm always going to use it that way because there's definitely a difference between reading the books and actually doing the thing. I think every teacher can attest to that one. We've had so many people come to us and say, you need to do this, this, this. And we're like, wait, how? Like, give me some tangible tips here because it is different when you're putting it into practice and it looks different for every single classroom. And I think that that's What's maybe difficult sometimes about trauma supportive work, but also what makes it so beautiful is that there's not a one size fits all because there can't be. You need to see the people in front of you and you need to read the room and you need to figure it out because I can't show you what's in front of you. You have to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And it's worth it. It's yes. worth it. Like I would hope that someone would value me and my feelings and emotions enough to take the time to figure out what's going on. So I'm going to value the emotions and the feelings of the students in front of me. Many times it can feel overwhelming 
because I've got all these kids. What do you mean I'm supposed to? But I do feel like there are some practical steps that we can take to be designing lessons through a trauma lens. So what would you say? Are there, you know, a couple of things that you typically recommend as far as starting this journey and positioning the classroom to be a space that is supportive? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different places that we can take this. So I would say the first thing that I always start with is just a little bit more of that identity work piece. It's identifying your own bias and what you come into the classroom with. Like, again, that dinner party, what are you already coming with? What are your preconceived notions? What are your biases around education in general? Because like, if you're anything like me, when I was growing up, my parents thought teachers like were amazing and they were very smart and they did no wrong. And like if the teacher called and they said it was your fault, like it was your fault, you were getting grounded. Like that was it. But that's not every family's reality. And I think as teachers, we like to think that we're in in control of things. And I always tell people like control is not real. Um, And you really are only in control of two things, providing opportunities for our kids to learn and providing them safety, being a safe individual for them. Those are the only two things that you can control. Aside from that, like you can't make a kid do your worksheet, like you can't make them do anything. It's so important for us to make sure that we reflect on that because for a lot of our kids who have been in the educational system, sometimes they have educational trauma and sometimes their families, they might have some chip on their shoulder about something that went wrong in kindergarten and they might've taken that with them. And that's their story. And that's a piece of that, um, that child's identity now. And so we need to make sure that we are including that in our reflective practice and making sure that it's not about, again, it's not about us. It's about who we're serving because being a teacher is in, in service to children and their families. So that's a practical thing that I would like every teacher to do is just to reflect. And then the second piece, if we want to get into more of like the practical things that you can do in your classroom environment, when we think about kids with trauma histories, a lot of times we think about kids who have big behaviors. You might see some manifestations of that because trauma leaves a physical mark on the body. So it just rewires your neural pathways. It changes the physiology of your body and it can do a lot of damage physically. And so that manifests in a ton of different ways in the classroom, anything from executive functioning deficits to behavioral outbursts, like escalations and physical and you know verbal aggression. But if we want to create a physical space that's welcoming to children, that we're thinking of that it reflects that ability to regulate your nervous system, which is a huge piece of trauma-supportive work, then we want to think about taking some of the things out of the classroom. We want to think about less is more, not as much stuff on the walls and books everywhere and piles of things. We want to think of it as a very energetically like aligned and clear space that just leaves us feeling good. I always think about it to like an HGTV episode. Like your classroom does not need to be like on fixer upper. But it's that same energetic principle, right? You want it to be inviting. You want it to be cozy. You want it to be homey. You want it to be a place where kids can identify and feel safe. But you also need to make sure that it's not looking like an episode of Quarter. That's like a practical thing that you can physically do with your environment. When we think about the way that we structure our academic blocks, some trauma-supportive pieces that we can put into practice there are just making sure that we're providing students the opportunity for choice if they need it, that we're giving them some autonomy over what they're learning, not necessarily that we're changing the standards that we're putting in front of them because we all know that we have to do what we have to do. But I think when we look for trauma-supportive educational tweaks and changes for those kids that really need it, we want to make sure that we're providing them choice in some of the materials that they're using or choice 
choice in where they physically feel safest within that physical environment to get the work done. So those are just like some practical things that you can do like tomorrow in your classroom. Those are really helpful. And especially the identity piece. I am all about reflection. I think I've done half of the episodes on this podcast are about reflection and effective reflective practices because we cannot create a space where our students are truly going to thrive until we understand who we are and how we're showing up. Like the expectations that I have around success, the expectations I have around dedication and respect and all of that Mm -hmm. are likely very different than the ones that my students have. Even about escalation and de-escalation. I was raised in a household where, I don't know, for example, maybe my parents yell and scream and they're banging on cabinets and Or I was raised in a household where I never saw my parents argue, but then my senior year of high school, they get a divorce. So clearly there were things going on, right? But they hid everything away. So we don't know what these kids are seeing as far as how to self-regulate. Maybe they're not seeing anything at all. And we have to think about our own space. And so what are our expectations? I love that. That, That's definitely always the best first step. And adding to that some of the ways that you can design your classroom, really what you're talking about is just good teaching. Mm. This is good, yes, for our children with the quote, big behaviors, but this is good for just our children. I would love choice. I would love to be able to decide that today it feels better for my energy to work on the carpet as opposed to sitting up in the desk. Maybe it's better for me to be in the back of the classroom versus the front of the classroom today? How am I being becoming more aware of what I need to actually be a good learner? That's good for all of our kids. And maybe today I'm having a big behavior day, even though normally I don't have big behaviors, but today something happened last night, my grandmother passed away, a good friend of mine moved away, my cousin said something crazy, I don't know whatever it is. And then I come to school and I am triggered and I get to decide because my teacher has set up this space just in general to be trauma supportive, where I can move to one of the things that you have shared previously, this calm down space. Or maybe I get to, to decide the materials that I'm using to complete the assignment for today. Maybe today's not a day where I want to do a flip grid and I'm on camera or whatever. Maybe I just want to record my voice. Maybe I just want to draw a picture, but I'm still getting credit for this assignment. I don't have to do a group activity. I think that those are so practical and they really are just good teaching. Great. Yeah, I'm glad that they're helpful because I always actually say that a lot of people will come to me and ask, well, how do I know if a kid has trauma? And I always say it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Is it helpful to know sometimes? Sure. If you have a kid who is really in crisis and the family share things with you that can help you put some of those pieces together, absolutely. That can be helpful information. But is it necessary? No. I think that we can all recognize a kid who needs a little extra loving. Like, And that's not something that we should shy away from because that kid doesn't have an IEP or that kid doesn't have a quote unquote trauma history that we know of. Because our experiences change from day to day. And even if you don't have quote unquote a trauma history again, trauma is experienced individually and it's not for us to 
say whether something was a traumatic event or not. Everybody handles things differently. They all code it into their nervous system differently. Like my body is going to code in a traumatic event differently than yours. You could see something on the news and feel that very intensely. And I could just kind of see it as like a passing news story. It's just very, very different. And so if we build foundationally these structures into our classroom and it becomes just the way that we operate, then when you do get that kid who really does need it because they truly do have ongoing trauma in their life, it's just going to be how you run your classroom. It's not going to feel like another thing to do. I think also what that does is it like you were talking about safety. It creates a safe space for the child that may have some type of serious trauma that they've experienced or are currently experiencing. And now because of the way that you have designed your classroom, the lessons, the space, the energy, that child now feels safe to share it with you. They may not tell anyone else. I mean, I, I think, well, I would hope that most teachers have experienced a time when a child has come to them because they felt very safe. I know for myself, there were times when I had young girls come to me and say, this is what happened last night. And unfortunately, the next call was to, you know, Child Protective Services, but they felt safe enough to come to me because of the way that I had arranged my classroom and I'm thinking to myself, gosh, some of the things that you're sharing, I, I would have loved to have been able to incorporate those. So I'm glad that I can share that now with everyone that's listening, because like you said, we don't know when or how a trauma might occur for a child. They might see something that we never even see. And it, it impacts the way that they are for the rest of that day, for the rest of that school year. One thing that you keep talking about, though, are these big behaviors and like de-escalation and this calm down corner. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I know for the teachers that I support this year, a lot of them are dealing with some big behaviors and they want some practical tips for how to help to de-escalate some of those situations. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of big behaviors, I always, first of all, pro tip, level your behaviors. If you have behaviors in your classroom and they are stressing you out, level your behaviors. Think about the most stressful behaviors that are happening in your classroom. It could be physical aggression, verbal aggression, and then kind of think about the next tier of behavior. Maybe it's work refusal. Maybe it's poor social skills. All of those things can be leveled and changed depending on or targeted depending on the intensity of them. So when we think about big behaviors, we want to always support and tackle those first. So we want to tackle those like level three behaviors, as I would call them or level them. Um, and those are your physical and verbal aggression behaviors. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to address the other ones down the line. It just means that we always want to triage in, in behavior work. But when we think about supporting those kids and those behaviors in the classroom, a very practical thing to do is to create a calm down corner. Now, if you had talked to me years ago, I would have said, create a calm down corner where they can go to when they are escalated. And over the years, I have changed my stance on that and really understood a little bit more that kids cannot self-regulate until we co-regulate with them. Self-regulation truly is a very high level skill. And it's something that I would argue most adults don't even know how to do properly. Um, <laughs> so, and myself included, like I am, listen, I have a temper on me sometimes and I need to check myself. So I totally get that we're all kind of living and breathing this, trying this work, but we need to make sure that we understand that these are little humans, right? Like they don't have the experiences. They don't have the verbal output. They don't have the communication skills. They don't have any of that yet. And again, if they do have a damaged stress response system that is triggering them to find trauma and to find danger in very safe 
what we would call safe places, then that's something that needs to be addressed holistically, as I like to say, like holistic behavior management is trauma supportive behavior management. But a calm down quarter is really just a place that your student knows to go to or can advocate to go to independently, or you can support them. So you might have a signal that you use, that they use. They might have a keyword that they shout out in the middle of your lesson and like you're cool with that and they just know to go to this place. They might put a a symbol on their desk. They might have like, I don't know, a marble or something that they like put out and put on their desk and you know that they're going to that place. So it gives them, you're structuring it so that you're supporting them and being able to advocate for their needs. So you're building in that skill because that's a huge piece of this work. And then you're also providing the safe place for them to go to. Now, again, in this strategy, I would really support teachers in going over to that student very quickly and seeing if they need to co-regulate with someone. Now you might have a student that's been doing this for a really long time and knows how to regulate their nervous system, knows how to get back on track, can do that seamlessly, but you might have a student that needs you to help them. They need you to color with them for five minutes. They need you to hear them out. They need to verbally just like blah, They need to yell, they need to scream, they need to swear, they need to do something, they need to get it out. And you might need to be that safe individual to which they can lean on and just be there supporting them. So that's really what a calm down corner should be. And it doesn't mean that it's like this tiny little corner in your classroom. It could be the counselor um, has a safe place in there and that could be their place that they go to. It could be another teacher that they just really liked or a teacher, I've even used uh, a teacher from a prior year that one of my students had a great relationship with. Do you wanna go see her? go ahead. Like if that's what's going to help you, like let's get creative and let's really think about more of just like regulation strategies rather than just like thinking about it as this finite, a calm down corner. This is where I set up this chair. This is where I set up this station. It's not, we don't want to be so finite in that thinking. We really want to think a little bit more outside the box. So I think that those are some, you know, practical tips that hopefully will serve, (laughs) serve your listeners. Those were so good. I love how at the end, I like, all of it. But at the end, I love how you are encouraging us. You're challenging us. I call these challengements Mm -hmm. to think outside of the box. We like to put things in these very pretty boxes with bows on top and say, this is how it should look. Where's my checklist? Where's my script? But life is not a checklist and it's not a script. And we have to stop doing that in education because it's not benefiting anyone, not not benefiting the teachers or the students. So I love how you are encouraging us to say the calm down corner may not actually be of space in your classroom. It may be the counselor. It may be another teacher. That is so powerful because I believe that this work is done best in partnership. Mm -hmm. It is done best in partnership. We all have a lot going on and how much better am I going to be at my job? How much better am I going to be able to support students if I know I can lean on not maybe just my grade level team, but the team of teachers in the year before the year? Like, you know, how can we support each other in making sure that the students have what they need and also the teachers have what they need, right? Because if I know that I can send my child to your classroom and we've got it set up, Mm-hmm. That also helps me as the teacher to not experience trauma in the classroom because, hey, teacher trauma is a real thing, too. I love the idea of helping kids to advocate for themselves. We keep talking about identity work. Advocacy, self-advocacy is so important. And we as adults struggle to advocate for ourselves, let alone being able to teach children. And that goes back to that control piece. 
when, when we allow our students to advocate for themselves, that means that we have to kind of step back a little bit and say, oh, you know what? Maybe this isn't the best thing for you. Let's talk about, let's co-create an environment that is that is best for you. So thinking about advocacy, what is the signal? What's the keyword? What's the symbol? And also the idea of co-regulation. Mm. There is a, um, I don't know, a mommy blogger that I followed years ago, and she always said, you cannot get upset with your children if they do not complete the chore that you have assigned them in the way that you want it done, unless you have first taught it to them and then second, done it with them. You can't just tell a child what to do. If you want me to vacuum the stairs, hey, come stand by me while I vacuum these stairs today. I'm showing you how to do it. And then I sit next to you while you do it. Mm -hmm. And we talk through, because even with my daughter, she's nine. We were, we've been talking about keeping her room clean and it's driving me nuts because she struggles with it. But I said, it's really not about what mommy wants. It's about what you need. What is the system that you need to put into place for you to be able to keep your room clean? Don't ask me what I want, because I'll tell you, I've got my own system. This is why my room looks the way that it does. What do you need? So bridging that gap and bringing that same energy into the classroom, I think it's going to be a game changer, Rachel. Totally agree with you. And I think it's so important too, like what you were saying, them being able to advocate for themselves. I think a huge piece that I always want people to recognize is that the behaviors that you see in your classroom that are not conducive to children sitting down and following expectations blindly are the behaviors that will serve them very well in life. Those are the pieces of their personalities that we should be highlighting, that we should be supporting them in creating and crafting to make it work for them. And I always told my students, even when I taught middle school, you don't like that person, great, make it work for you. Find out how you can make this relationship work for you. I don't care if you like me as a teacher, find out how to work with me. Those are those are things that we need to we need to stop getting so emotional about the behavior itself and thinking about the skills that are underlying those behaviors. If a student is refusing to work and they're telling you no, that's a huge piece of self-advocacy. Great. I'm so happy that you're able to do that for me. I want you to be able to do that when somebody's trying to put their hands on you when they shouldn't be. I want you to be able to do that when you're, you know, when you're in a job that's taking advantage of you. I want you to be able to say these things and to own your body and to own your words and to own your thoughts. But to that end, we also need to make sure that we're crafting it so that it supports our students in learning and engaging in the material. And that's the piece that we need to be supporting in the classroom. And that goes back to, again, this, this conversation of equity. When people feel like, oh, it's too challenging to create an equitable space or it's so much. My question is, have you asked the kid? You're trying to guess at what this child needs. And yes, it can be difficult for children to articulate some of their needs. But if you keep asking the questions over and over again and you provide the space for them to think about it, then they will. Again, I have five children. The oldest is 11. The youngest is two. And trust me, that two-year-old knows how to advocate for herself, okay? And I keep on, what, what do you need? How can mommy help you? What do you need? Use your words. Here, take me, show me what you need. And when my kids are in school and they're having a challenge, I always tell them, have you signed up for a teacher-student conference? Because I need for you to advocate for yourself first. Let's talk through what it is that you're going to say in this space. But mommy's not always going to be there to advocate for you and for your needs. So you need to learn that skill, but it is a little bit scary. And, you know, one of the things that I like to do with my kids is when we practice working on a strategy, any type of intervention that we've been utilizing for the behavior plan or for just like programming academically, when we practice that, 
when we utilize that strategy, we talk about, is this working for you? Why or why not? We involve them in the conversation. So if there's an intervention that you're using for a behavior, the student should know that they're using it. They should know why you put that into place and they should know if they like it or if they don't like it. And if they like it and it's working for them, it's so important that we make sure that they know how to advocate for that, that we literally practice, like we'll role play and I'll pretend that I'm a teacher from next year. And they have to say, you know, Mrs. Nye, this actually works for me when I'm taking notes. This part doesn't like I, I want them to be able to verbalize that because a lot of times we think that just because we gave it to them, that they can go on and they can transfer that skill. And it's just like teaching reading, right? We would never just give a kid a book and be like, hey, read. We want to make sure that we're teaching them and we're scaffolding that and teaching them every bit of it along the way. I I also wanted to circle back to how you were saying that some of those, uh, you know, behaviors or or challenges that, that students pose to the teacher where it's like, well, this kid is responding this way or they're not doing this thing. And you were saying that teachers need to to kind of support that and say, oh, this way that you're showing up, it's irritating me. It's challenging me, but it actually will probably serve you later in life as a full adult. When I'm when I'm coaching teachers, I ask them. How has this student challenged your skills? Because it's, they're just being them, but the way that they're showing up, it is challenging you. It's challenging your skills. It's challenging your mindsets. It's challenging your expectations, beliefs. How is this child challenging the way that you show up? That's why you feel this tension. Or if you know that the way that they're showing up is going to be harmful to them in the future, because you are an adult, you do have a little bit more perspective. Can you share that with them? Can you, can you talk to them about it and say, listen, I want you to be all that you desire. But from my years of experience, I will just tell you that sometimes when you engage with people and you start by attacking them, like verbally attacking them, they shut down and they don't respond. But if you were to start this way, I think that you might actually get what you want, right? Like, how are we helping them, as you said, to understand why they are being this way? how they show up this way, like how it impacts them, how it impacts their classmates, their colleagues in the future. We have to connect all of the pieces together for these kids because they they are too young. Even as high school seniors, their like frontal lobe is still not developed. That thing doesn't fully develop until you're like, what, 30 or something? I mean, come on. I'm 39. So I, whew, I just got there, you know, like I just barely crossed that finish line, I think. And I'm still now doing other things. I think that for teachers who want to really dive into understanding more of the fundamentals and the research behind this work, then one, they should connect with you because I'm definitely not an expert in this space. I just love it. And I do read some things to help me understand this more. But I think that you've given some really good strategies for starting to shift your mindset, some practical strategies for reevaluating the way that educator shows up and how we can support our students. I want to know, is there anything else that you feel like is important for educators to understand as they are stepping into creating this trauma-supportive space? I have absolutely loved chatting with you, um, and I feel like we could chat forever about this stuff. But um, I think the only thing that I would leave educators with is it can be messy and allow it to be messy. Allow it to be full of mistakes and own them with the kids. You know, I think that we forget that we're allowed to be human and that we forget that even though they are kids and we need to make them feel safe, right? Because that's what we're there for. We're adults that need to be, you know, keeping kids safe. 
we can show them and we can craft that authenticity and let them know, I kind of lost my temper a little bit when you were throwing my materials on the floor. This is why it made me feel that way. We need to just own it and then we need to move on. And I think that's the other piece that I will leave everybody with. Behavior is indeed personal. And I love that people want to say that it's not and like, don't take the behavior personal. I, I totally think it's absolutely personal. And there's nothing more personal than a kid that's in crisis that needs support. But when we do take it personally, we need to ask ourselves why, number one. And number two, how can we use this to build the relationship instead of using it to shame our kids and to create an even bigger void in between us and where we want our kids to be? So I just always understand that it's going to be messy and then just keep asking yourself why and how we can make it better. That's a perfect way to like end this episode because we want this to be a verb. We want you to get out and do the thing. So if people want to connect with you, because I know that they will, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at underscore safe space teaching or on my website, safespaceteaching.com. Thank you so much. I learned a ton today and I can't wait to use some of these strategies with my own children, but then to also be able to share this information with all of the teachers that I said, thank you so much for what it is that you do, how you are supporting teachers and our students. We really, really value that lens and we need more of it. Thank you so much for having me. I loved talking today and I hope that it serves your people well. I know that it will. All right, my friends. Remember to seek joy, affirm culture, center equity, and strive for liberation through learning every single day. If you are loving this podcast, it would mean so much if you could share it with a friend. I'd also love for you to rate and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. That way other educators know that this is the podcast for them. All right, my friend, I'll talk to you next week.